Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament theology and church history at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I thought I would jump into the discussion surrounding some major uh, Christian leaders, influencers who have recently, quote unquote, denounced the faith or have committed the sin of apostasy. Um, let's start by talking about Joshua Harris. Um, about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, uh, Joshua Harris posted on Instagram that he is no longer a Christian. And before I get to the Instagram post, uh, let me just give you a little bit of background if you're not familiar. Uh, hopefully you've been reading up on this, but if not, uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, he wrote a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which really advocated courtship as um, the only means of, of dating or, or of, a, of a boy and girl getting together. And I was a youth pastor back in those days in the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, I began reading uh, Josh Harris uh, back then. My wife worked at a Christian bookstore. She was the assistant manager back in those days. And this was a, a hot topic, a hot item uh, when we lived back in Colorado Springs. And then about seven, eight years ago, um, when he took over the pastor, uh, being the, the lead pastor of uh, the big Sovereign Grace Church in Maryland, C.J. Mahaney's church, um, he became a leader in the reform movement. Um, he was a breakout speaker at Together for the Gospel. Um, he started his own conference and writ, wrote many books on the Christian faith and was an up-and-coming leader in the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. There were a lot of things that happened at um, the, the, the church that he pastored with some uh, sexual allegations of child abuse that happened back in the 80s, and he had to deal with the fallout of that as a young pastor. Um, he was not seminary trained, and I think whatever happened at Covenant Life Church in Maryland with all of the lawsuits and things, and you can go back and read that, um, I think he got burnt out on that, and so he resigned as pastor, and then he went off to Regent College in Vancouver to study and get his, his seminary degree, and I think it was there that his views began to change. And so let me just read to you um, his Instagram post and this is what it says. He says, The information that was left out of our announcement, he and his wife are getting a divorce, is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction, but the biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, my teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I specifically want to add this to the list now. To the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I am sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I, regard, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you in your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. Now the major statement he has is, by all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And he actually uses the biblical term falling away. 
So that's a major leader in evangelicalism, especially under the Young, Restless, and Reform movement, Joshua Harris, who has quote-unquote fallen away from the faith. Just a few days ago, there, is, um, there, there was a, an announcement from Marty Sampson. He is a worship leader and written many songs for Hillsong and Hillsong United. Um, and so he came out with a statement about his faith as well. And so he said this, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. Um, it's crazy. He goes on to say that um, basically all I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive absolutely. Be kind absolutely. Be generous and do to others absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall. Let the sun come up tomorrow. Um, I'm not in it anymore, Christianity. I want genuine truth, not the just I believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. Marty Sampson, Joshua Harris, two younger evangelical leaders, influencers, if you want to say, who have denounced the faith. And so how should we respond when we hear news like this? Well, I think the first way to respond is with grieving, with sorrow. We should never rub our hands in glee or be excited when a person who professes faith in Christ denounces the faith. It should lead us to sorrow. It should lead us to grieve for them, their families, those that are around them. We don't know what's going on in their personal lives and how it's impacting those closest to them. And so we should pray for them and grieve for them and and really be saddened. But at the same time, this stands as a warning, a strong warning of the reality of apostasy. Now, what is apostasy or a falling away? Well, let me clearly state that it's not losing your salvation. Now, I know I'm going a little bit out of order on this because in our next podcast, as we continue the 400th anniversary of the Canons of Dort, we're going to look at the final main point of doctrine, which is perseverance of the saints or eternal security. Uh, But I felt like I wanted to address this issue before I jump into that issue. And so it's not that these men lost their salvation or walked away and they were genuinely, truly born again believers. The Bible clearly teaches that there is a sin called apostasy. And the book of Hebrews probably is the clearest place that you can go that teaches this. Now, there's basically five major warning sections in the book of Hebrews that give strong warnings to professing Christians not to fall away. Now, and specifically in the book of Hebrews, the writer is addressing Jewish Christians who were under major temptation to fall back into Judaism, to go back into the temple system, and to go back into the dietary laws and all of the things that were trapped up in 
Judaism and to walk away from Christianity and go back to what they were comfortable with and what they came out of. So that's the immediate context of what's going on in the book of Hebrews. But what I want to focus on is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, which I think has somewhat been a confusing passage of Scripture over the years that's been debated, but I think it's a clear passage that teaches on the sin of apostasy. So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The writer says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation." Now, what I want to draw your attention to is that the writer of Hebrews from chapter 1 up to chapter 6, verse 3, he has been using the first person pronoun, which is we, us, beloved. He's talking to believers, genuine believers. But then he shifts in verse Four to third person, they, those. And so when you're looking at the scriptures and you're doing exegetical study, you've got to ask the question, why is there a distinction in the grammar made between the pronouns? Why begin with we, us, and then switch to they, them? Well, obviously the audience has changed. The writer is addressing a different audience. And so grammatically with the pronouns, you immediately begin to ask the question, okay, he must be addressing a different group of people besides his original audience of true believers. And so who are these people that he is addressing? Well, these people, the they, the those, they've been members of the church. They've confessed Christ publicly. They've enjoyed the benefits of being around God's people. They may have even experienced blessings, actually may have even been involved in ministry. But what they've done is they have decidedly rejected Christ. They have adamantly fallen away. They've committed the sin of apostasy. These are not outright pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who've never heard. These are not blatant atheists who've never professed faith in Christ and have been hostile. These are religious people 
who've had close proximity to Jesus. They know their Bibles. They've moved within church circles. They've professed faith. They may have been baptized and joined a church, but they were never, ever truly born again, regenerated, saved. They were fakes. They were not soundly saved. Now, many in the Arminian tradition have argued that this text in Hebrews proves that a person can lose his or her salvation. But I believe the exact opposite. I find that the text gives the strongest definition of apostasy. So let's just look closely at this text. The writer of Hebrew gives a list of five benefits that these people have experienced in their close proximity to Jesus and in their relationship with the church. But as we shall see, we're never truly saved. So what's the first benefit? What what does the text say? Well, the text says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, once been enlightened. Okay, what does this mean? They've been enlightened. In other words, they've come to a knowledge of the truth. They've understood the facts of the gospel. They know the Bible. Uh, For example, in the situation with Joshua Harris, he's very clear. And he gave the biblical category for him falling away. He didn't mince words. He didn't kind of make up a weird thing. He said, I'm actually committing what the Bible calls falling away. But yet, they've never truly been converted. So being enlightened does not mean you were ever saved. There's no mention here in this passage of Scripture, when you look at these five benefits, it's very interesting. When you look at these five benefits that the writer of Hebrews mentions here, the words that he uses are not normal biblical phrases or theological terms used in regards to salvation. Uh, We don't see the words like faith, repentance, Um, justification, forgiveness, regeneration, adoption. Uh, There's no key theological words there. It's just they've been enlightened. They've once been enlightened. They've been exposed to the gospel. Um, Some scholars, if you look at commentaries, believe that maybe historically this is code word for they got baptized. They'd been enlightened. They got baptized. Now, I don't know if the text is strong enough to to make that jump. That's what some scholars believe. Um, But let's just ask a clear question. Does this enlightening or exposure to the gospel happen to the pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who've never heard? No, this, this happens to people who know their Bibles, people who've been around sound teaching, people who've heard sermons, people who have been in Bible studies, all the blessings that come around being other Christians. In the case of Joshua Harris, one who was a pastor who studied the Bible, and Marty Sampson, one who wrote songs about the Bible. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying these these people have been enlightened. They've been around biblical truth. And, And that can be said for a lot of people. There are a lot of people in churches right now who know their Bibles, who know the confessions, who even know sound theology, but may not be truly saved. Okay, what's the second thing he says here? They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, that's a little ambiguous. We, we don't know exactly what the gift is. 
It's called the heavenly gift. Now, this could be salvation, but, but notice the language that the writer uses. They tasted it. They tasted it. Um, when you go to Coldstone, I don't know if where you live they have Coldstone ice cream, but we like to go there. And if you go to Coldstone, they have all these different flavors of ice cream, and they can, you can sample a flavor that you've never had before. And they give you a little plastic spoon, and you, you sample it before you decide you want to get you know, the, the full ice cream. And I think that when you think about that analogy of sampling something, you're just taking a little bit to see if you like it. Uh, they tasted the heavenly gift. They didn't fully swallow. They didn't fully consume. They didn't digest Christ in the gospel. They just sampled it. Um, they got close enough to try Jesus out for a while, but they were never fully regenerated. And so, again, these words are very interesting. They, they were enlightened. They were exposed to truth. They, they tasted the heavenly gift. They may have made a profession of faith and understood who Jesus is, but down to the core of their being, they were not regenerated. Okay, third, the writer of Hebrews says they shared or were partakers in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a a rare Greek word used in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Um, It really means association. Uh, This word is never used anywhere else in the New Testament to describe a true Christian. Uh, They were in association with the Spirit. Um, If you read the New Testament, words like, we're indwelt, the Holy Spirit's in us. Uh, We're sealed with the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We're baptized in the Spirit. These words are missing here. What, what this probably means is that these people saw evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in the church and their friends and family. Uh, they saw the movement of the Spirit in a worship service. They may have even seen evidences of God's Spirit operating in their friends and family. And so they saw evidence of the Holy Spirit. But they were not indwelt with the Spirit. They were not regenerated by the Spirit. They were not sealed with the Spirit. They just had an association with the Spirit. They had close proximity to the work of the Spirit. Okay, fourth, they tasted. And that's the same word again. He's using this tasting language. Fourthly, they tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And that sounds good. They, they tasted the Word of God. Now, what does this mean? Well, again, did they fully digest and abide in God's word through regeneration? Uh, They may have been under good preaching and teaching. They may have actually been a good preacher. I mean, if you go back and listen to Joshua Harris's sermons, he has some pretty good sermons. They, uh, some I don't really listen to Hillsong, and our church doesn't do Hillsong songs. um, But I'm and I don't know off the top of my head which songs Marty Sampson wrote. But I'm sure some of them had um, the biblical word of God in it. So these people. They tasted good teaching. They benefited from the Word of God. They may have even been moved by a sermon. Again, this all happens in church. It happens around God's people. Fifthly, they tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, now what does this mean, the powers of the age to come? Contextually, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Greek word that's used here in chapter 6 for powers, back in chapter 2, most translations use the word miracles. Um, It's the same Greek word. Um, It it could be that these people 
were exposed to supernatural miracles. They may have even been performing miracles themselves. And so we have to ask the question about these five evidences or these five things, these five attributes of of what these people have experienced. Where do these things take place? In the community of faith around Christian people. It's a very strong warning from the writer of Hebrews that the sin of apostasy is committed by religious people, professing Christians, those who have close proximity to the church. This is not pagan idolatry where people who have never heard the gospel are are, are dying in their sins because they've never heard. This, This is an exposure, a maximum exposure, if you will, to the things of God within the community of faith. Now, do we have biblical evidence of apostasy? Yes, we do. Um, There's a man in the scriptures whose name is Demas. His name is Demas. And he's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And we know that he is a a traveling companion of Paul. So we find in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul lists Demas along with Luke, who was one of Paul's key traveling companions. So contextually, Demas was a probably in the close inner circle. I mean, you think about the traveling companions and the ministry leadership team that Paul had. You've got Luke, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy. I mean, originally you had Barnabas before the split between over John Mark, but Demas is listed here. He's probably one of the key leaders in Paul's apostolic team. We also find out in Philemon, Verse 24, uh, you've got Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Demas is introduced in Colossians and in Philemon as a fellow worker, as a co-laborer, part of Paul's apostolic team. But then in 2 Timothy 4.10, which is Paul's last, 2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle, right before he's dying. So this is at the end of his life. Some things have changed with Demas. Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's very interesting language there. Demas had done two things. He was in love with the present world, and he deserted Paul. And so think about the language there. And the Greek text there, the word world is not the normal word when you think of world cosmos. It's actually the word aeon, which is more like the age. Demas was in love with this present age. That's an interesting wording. He was in love with this present age. Think about the language there. Remember what? First John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Demas had a love affair 
with the present age. In other words, the present age, the worldview of the culture, he had adopted and loved and embraced over the truth of Scripture. In other words, he, instead of his mind being conformed to the word of God and being transformed by the renewing of his mind through saturating himself in scripture, the present age, the philosophies of that present age. And it's interesting, it says he had gone to Thessalonica. It's just a kind of an offhand comment there that he went back to Thessalonica. We don't know why Demas went back to Thessalonica. Maybe there was something in Thessalonica that caught his eye, or maybe there was a relationship there. Maybe that's where he's from. We don't know, but he went back to Thessalonica. But the two things that are said here is that he was in love with the world. And what did that lead to? He deserted me. He deserted. He abandoned. He forsook Paul. He fell away. So we have a biblical example of a man named Demas who was an apostolic leader. Demas was in the inner circle of Paul's leadership team. Been discipled by Paul himself. Taught theology by Paul himself. Probably given ministry leadership responsibilities by Paul himself. He could have taught small group Bible studies. He could have even preached sermons. He, he could have even gone out and done, done ministry. And yet, he was in love with the present age And he abandoned the faith. He walked away. Now, let's go back to Hebrews for a moment. In verse 4, it says, It is impossible to bring a person back to repentance who's fallen away. And, And don't downplay the language there. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose that word carefully. He didn't say it's improbable or unlikely, it's impossible. And the Greek word means what it says, impossible. Just a little bit of information about how the Greek language works. Normally, when you're writing in Greek and you're looking at the language in the New Testament, sometimes the first word in a paragraph or the first word in a section in the original text is put there for emphasis. So it's the first thing that, that pops out. It stresses the severity of the warning that the word impossible should pop out to you. So it's impossible for a person to have experienced these five blessings and then to have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Now, let's talk about the word falling away. The word falling away. It's the Greek word parapipto which means to fall away or to apostatize. And it's in a Greek tense in the original language that that really shows that it's a decisive, deliberate, willful act of rejection. It's willful, it's deliberate, it's conscious. And here's the sad thing about it. In light of these five blessings or these five descriptions of being near to Jesus, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, being around the work of the Holy Spirit, being around good preaching, seeing God's power move in the church. 
basically a person says, I'm abandoning all of that. I may have even made a profession of faith, but I'm making a conscious, deliberate decision to actually fall away. Now, the word it's impossible to bring that person back to repentance. And you've got to deal with the question there. If the writer says it's impossible, it's impossible. In other words, this is where the doctrine of election and perseverance of the saints really comes into play. Because if God has unconditionally chosen sinners before the foundation of the world to be saved, and he's given those people to Jesus, and Jesus came to die specifically for those people and to lose none that the Father has given him, but raised them up on the last day, and the Holy Spirit has regenerated those people and is indwelling those people, then God will ensure that those people will persevere to the end. In other words, it's a Trinitarian issue. The Father chooses, the Son dies, and the Holy Spirit regenerates and seals and preserves the elect. So when the writer here says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance, he's not talking about a person who is a true believer who lost their salvation. These people were never saved in the first place. They were not chosen by the Father. They were not purchased by the Son. And they were not regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, they may have made a profession of faith, but they never had true possession of faith. Let me say that again. They may have made a profession of faith, but they never had possession of faith. There's a difference between just professing faith in Christ and actually truly being one of the elect and being saved. And so when the writer says it's impossible to bring them back to repentance, they're not among the elect. And they're not going to be saved. And why is this apostasy so damning? Well, what does the writer of Hebrews say here? He makes some very strong language. He says, they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Basically, when a person commits the sin of apostasy, it's a slap in the face to the once and for all finished work of Christ. They're acting as if Jesus is on the cross again, and they're like in the crowd mocking him, and they're holding Christ up to contempt, and, and, and they're, they're actually spitting upon what he's done. In other words, showing contempt for Christ is the worst treatment that you can give to Jesus. And what an apostate's doing, whether they're consciously knowing that they're doing this or not, based upon the scripture here, is, is basically they're saying by their rejection that they hate what Jesus did on the cross with contempt. They think it's the most stupid thing in the world, and they, they think it's shameful. Now, it's interesting. The writer of Hebrews has made a strong statement. He says, listen, it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who have committed the sin of apostasy, a deliberate, strong, rebellious, conscious falling away. This isn't like, you know, you commit... A sin. Uh, let, let, let's put it this way. Let's say that you're you're a true believer. You're a Christian, and you commit adultery. You have a moment of weakness. You have a problem with lust, and you have committed the sin of adultery. 
does that mean that you've apostatized, that you've walked away from the faith? No, if you're a true believer, God will discipline you. God will bring, back, bring you back to himself through the gifts of, of repentance and, and, and he will restore you. Now, you may deal with the fallout of a, of, a, of a marriage that's been destroyed, but apostasy is not like specific sins, like lying or cheating or stealing or, or sex before marriage or adultery or, or homosexuality. Now, those are sins that are serious sins, but that's not the sin of apostasy. Apostasy is an outright, conscious, deliberate, making the the bold statement, I am walking away from Christianity. And I think you see that with Joshua Harris. He said, flat out, I am not a Christian anymore. He knew what he was doing. He posted it on Instagram. This had been a process he's been dealing with for a time. I don't know how long, but he is making a conscious, deliberate statement that he is no longer a Christian. He has, and he's given the biblical category himself because he knows the Bible, he has fallen away. So it's a deliberate, conscious, falling away, rejection of Christ, saying that you're no longer a, a Christian, not just kind of a slip up here and there, it's a deliberate act. And then it's very interesting. What the writer of Hebrews goes on to say here, he gives an, agri- he gives an agricultural metaphor. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Okay, Interesting. Two responses to the warning about apostasy that prove the true spiritual condition of a person. Okay? So the first analogy is a person, it talks about how the rain comes and the ground receives it and it produces a crop. Okay? So the truly saved person will receive the word of the gospel. They won't just taste it. They won't just be enlightened. It will actually take root in their soul. They will be soundly saved. They will produce fruit that lasts, and they will receive the eternal blessing of God. Now, it's very interesting. It's very interesting that the writer of Hebrews makes an agricultural analogy because this is the same exact analogy that Jesus gives in the parable of the soils. So in Mark chapter 4, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path. The birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100-fold. And he said, he who has an ear, let him hear. And then they didn't understand the parable, and so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to explain it to you. So he goes on down in verse 12. He says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have 
no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, the rocky soil and the soil among thorns really illustrate this truth. And I think Jesus talks about what happens. So the, the rocky ground, the person hears the word of God, they receive it with joy, but there's no root. And they endure for a while, but when the tribulations or persecutions arise on the account of the word, they immediately fall away. Okay, you've, you've probably heard somebody, like, you've seen somebody like this, known somebody like this. Um, the, they, the gospel was preached to them. Let me give you an example. I can, I can think of many youth. As a youth pastor, I can think of some young adults. They went to camp. They went to a conference. They got excited about Jesus. They made a profession of faith. They, they were radical for Jesus. They, they were really, really excited about this newfound faith. And for a while, they were coming to church. They were coming to youth group. They were walking with the Lord. They, they were showing interest. They endured for a while, but then... What does it say? When tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. When things get difficult, when their friends started making fun of them, when they, when they realized that standing for Christ and standing for truth is going to be difficult, they fall away. Now, does this mean that they lost their salvation? No, notice what Jesus says very carefully. They have no root in themselves. That's the key to understanding this parable. They have no root. In other words, what we could say is they tasted, they were enlightened, they experienced being around Jesus, around the Holy Spirit, but they never had the root of the gospel birthed in them through the power of regeneration. They were never soundly converted. They never were given the gifts of repentance and faith. They made a public profession. They looked like they received the word and they endured for a while, but they fell away. Why? Because they were not truly saved. They had no root. Okay, others sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. Now, we have to look at this parable and realize, what's the only thing that's going to produce fruit if there's a root? If, if the gospel of Christ has taken root in your life through regeneration, it's going to produce fruit. If not, there is no fruit. Now, in the thorny soil, it talks about the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. And this could be said of what, what happened to Demas. Demas was lo in love with this current age. So it's materialism or um, sinful desires. The, the, the world just comes in and you weren't truly saved. And, and so you're so um, intimidated. You're so brought, um, caught up in the things of the world that, that you just lose focus on your profession of faith and you fall away. Now, we don't know what happened to Josh Harris or to Marty Sampson if 
It's, they're afraid of the persecution or the tribulation that comes from standing on biblical truth. Um, Josh Harris has made some statements about his views of the LBGTQ issue and how he's repenting of that and how he, he's become inclusive and, and maybe he just didn't want to deal with the persecution that's coming from our culture where we as Bible-believing Christians say that you know gay marriage is not biblical, a homosexual relationships not biblical, the whole LGBTQ issues, you know, we see major conflicts in the scriptures and so to stand on that solid ground of what the Bible teaches about homosexuality is going to bring tribulation and persecution from the culture. And a lot of Christians don't want to handle that, and so it's easier just to imbibe what the culture teaches. We, we really don't know. We just know that this parable of Jesus talks about agriculture. And, and, and what's the fourth soil? The fourth soil is the good soil because they heard the word, they accepted it, and they bore fruit. Okay? Now, the fruit is the proof of their salvation. All the other, the first three heard the word. And some of it received it with joy, but there was no true accepting of Christ in his word. There was no true root gospel taking place through regeneration in their lives. And so only those that are truly converted by sovereign grace, when the Holy Spirit grants you the gifts of repentance and faith and does that powerful work of the new birth in your heart to make you a new creation to sovereignly save you, are you going to be truly saved and you're going to bring forth fruit that shows that you've truly been saved? And so I think the writer of Hebrews goes back to this analogy of Jesus when he talks about the rain falling on the land and the land receiving the rain and then it produces fruit versus the other type of land that produces thorns and thistles, bears no fruit, proves worthless, and in the end is thrown out. That's the apostate person. So even in the analogy that the writer of Hebrews uses between the two types of soil, he's saying, listen, those that are truly soundly saved will have the root of regeneration in them through God's sovereign power, and they will produce fruit. They will endure to the end. They will prove through time that they are truly saved. Others will produce thorns and thistles, and they won't produce fruit. They may endure for a while, but they will fall away. Now, I want to get to verse 9. Because verse 9 is very, very interesting in how he switches back to the first person. Now, remember what I said, that from chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 3, he'd been talking in the first person us, we. And then in verse 4, he ships to they. But notice what he says in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In your case, as opposed to what I've just been talking about, the apostates, in your case, beloved, in your case, those who are truly saved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. He switches back to talking about Christians. 
He says, listen, the, the things I've been talking about, these five things, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, having association with the Holy Spirit, all these things, um, they, these things don't truly relate to salvation. They're simply temporary benefits that come from being close to, enough to Jesus and God's people to understand the gospel, but then to deliberately fall away. And so what he says is, I'm convinced that these things that belong to salvation, regeneration, justification, adoption, these things are true in your case because you've been soundly saved. In other words, you're good soil because you're bearing fruit that shows positive evidence of your salvation. So apostasy is a reality that should cause us sadness, but it also should be a great cause for warning. And why are the warning passages written to believers? Well, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of of Hebrews does not know who in his congregation are truly among the elect. There is the visible church of God, whereby people have made a public profession and have connected themselves to the visible church through baptism, where they've said, I trust Jesus, I'm being baptized, I'm joining the church, that they become visible members of a local body. But just because they're visible members of the local body through a profession of faith does not mean that they are truly, genuinely saved. So in every congregation, there's always going to be a mixed multitude. You're always going to have wheat among the tares. We don't know the hearts of those who are not truly saved. And so the warning passages serve as a reminder to those that are faking it to be woken up, to be shocked, to be alerted to the condition that they may be counterfeits. To those that are truly saved, it should be a source of assurance, an opportunity for you to to understand the truth of who you are in Christ. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you are not truly, genuinely, soundly saved, then would you call upon the name of Jesus today? You know deep in your heart whether you're saved or not. When you're in the quietness of your own soul, at night in your bed, when it's just you and your thoughts and you and God, you know deep down in your heart if you're a believer or not or if you're faking it or not. And if you're faking it, you've made a profession of faith and you're not truly saved, then the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Would you call upon the name of the Lord? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you're worried about what people are going to think at church. Let me tell you a story about my former pastor that I served under. My former pastor that mentored me, that loved me, that encouraged me. Let me tell you his testimony. He was not saved when he started pastoral ministry. He grew up in the church. He went to youth group. He even got called to missions and ministry. He went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. He went to a Bible college in Missouri. He did all the things that a good Christian young man would do that gets called to the ministry. And then he began pastoring his first church. And he realized in the midst of all that that he had not truly been converted by God's sovereign grace. He was just going through the motions to kind of please people and do what you kind of do. 
And so during the invitation hymn in his own sermon, at the end of his own sermon, he stood before the congregation and called the deacons up and said, I have a confession to make to you as a church. I've pastored this church for many years now, but I've not really been saved. And today I'm under strong conviction that God has saved me and I need to repent and believe and I'm making that profession of faith today. And they surrounded him and loved him and encouraged him. Now think about the the risk that would take if you're not saved and you're pastoring a church, think about the risk it would take for you to stand before your congregation and say, hey, all these years I've been preaching the Bible to you, I've been teaching the Bible to you, but I'm not actually saved. And now I think the Lord is moving in my heart and He's regenerating me and I'm, I'm saved now. I mean, there could be some confusion, there could be some bitterness, there can be some hostility. Uh, there, all the things, thankfully that church embraced Him and encouraged Him. So there may be a little bit of fear if you've been pretending to actually come forth and repent and believe and, and let, let people know that you've been soundly saved. So apostasy is real. Apostasy should make us grieve, and apostasy should be a clear warning to those that are merely professors of faith but are not in true possession of saving faith through sovereign regeneration. And we'll deal a little bit more with this in our next podcast when we talk about the fifth main point of doctrine in the 400th anniversary of the Canons of Dort, which is perseverance of the saints. Well, I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you. And I would pray this, would you endure to the end through the persevering grace that Christ alone gives to you as one of His elect.